The following sermon podcast is a glimpse into the community of Central Bible Church, where we strive to welcome everyone into Jesus' life. We hope that you can join us for this Sunday service as we gather together seeking to live in and for Christ. this morning is from Psalm 140. Rescue me, O Lord, from evil men. Protect me from men of violence who devise evil plans in their hearts and stir up war every day. They make their tongues as sharp as a serpent's. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Keep me, O Lord, from the hands of the wicked. Protect me from men of violence who plan to trip my feet. Proud men have hidden a snare for me. They have spread out the cords of their net and have set traps for me along my path. O Lord, I say to you, you are my God. Hear me, O Lord, my cry for mercy. O sovereign Lord, my strong deliverer, who shields my head in the day of battle. Do not grant the wicked their desires, O Lord. Do not let their plans succeed, or they will become proud. Let the heads of those who surround me be covered with the trouble their lips have caused. Let burning coals fall upon them. May they be thrown into the fire, into miry pits, never to rise. Let slanderers not be established in the land. May disaster hunt down men of violence. I know that the Lord secures justice for the poor and upholds the cause of the needy. Surely the righteous will praise your name and the upright will live before you. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. This is a sweet Sunday. We're dedicating some babies today. It's pretty sweet. We've got a, a few babies of our own that we're dedicating. Um, I'm super thankful for... Uh, anybody who's visiting out of town or grandparents, great-grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins, friends, if you're here on behalf of the family that's dedicating today, we're thankful that you're with us. Um, this morning we continue our series in the book of Psalms, and we continue the theme that we have started this fall of listening to God, waiting on God, and listening to one another. And our psalm is Psalm 140 that you just heard read, and I want to give a quick reminder about what the purpose of the psalms are for us before we begin. Simply put, the psalms describe every season of the heart. There's a different psalm for wherever you're at. doesn't matter if you're in a season of joy, grief, happiness, sadness, uh, suffering, trials, excitement, despair, fear, hope. There's a psalm for all of those emotions. The psalms cover the vast array of the human experience. And they give God's people permission to be honest with where they're at and what they're feeling. In each psalm, you're going to find a worship leader that's expressing the heart of the people to God, or you'll find in our case this morning, an individual like David expressing his own heart to God. And so the Psalms invite us to be honest 
with where we're at. And they invite us to listen to where other people are at, to seek to understand what they're feeling. So ultimately, the Psalms serve to unite us as God's people. This morning's Psalm, Psalm 140, sounded pretty intense. It's a Psalm of David, and the emotion that I think it expresses is that of anger. There are also tones of fear and stress, but the primary emotion of David is anger towards these wicked men who seek his demise. So some background real quick on our psalm. It's unclear at what point in David's life this psalm would have been given. It's likely that David may have recounted this story from his younger years as an older man, a story of being chased by Saul, perhaps, and his men. At first glance, this set, the setting for this psalm sounds like David's caught up in some kind of literal war battle, some kind of war scene is taking place where his enemies are trying to kill him and overtake him. But a closer look at the language used in this psalm suggests that David might actually be referring to a scene in court where he's being falsely accused. We know that because David's distress appears to be closely connected to the false accusations made against him. Verses 3, 11, and 12 hint at David recalling a courtroom battle. In verses 3 and 11, David reveals that the wickedness of these men is largely connected to their tongues or the words that they're saying about him. It is the venom from their lips, David says. It is David's request not to allow the liars to prosper. It seems to be a battle of words going on here, with David being falsely accused by those spewing lies and deceit. Then in verse 12, we hear David acknowledge that Yahweh secures justice for the poor and upholds the cause of the needy. Those two words, justice and cause, were legal terms most often used in a courtroom during this time. So after studying this passage in depth, I think that we have an older, wiser King David recording a time from his youth, recalling a time from his youth when he was caught up in a courtroom battle against some foes who were seeking to hurt him specifically by lying, deceiving, and slandering him. Either way, whether David is recalling a literal war setting or it's a metaphorical battle where the enemy wages war against him by making false accusations in court, David is angry at their lies at their evil plans. He's so angry that he asks Yahweh to snuff out the evil for good. He asks the Lord to snuff out the evil finally, forever. This is some pretty serious anger, I would say. I know when I initially heard this passage, I immediately thought about how extreme David's prayers against these enemies were. How does a man like David, a man after God's own heart, pray something this severe for his enemies? Is that okay? I think there's something we've got to keep in the back of our mind's eye as we work through the verses in this chapter. And it is this. 
Not all anger is wrong. There is a kind of anger that we feel when we're inconvenienced or our pride is hurt, and that's sinful anger, right? It's not right. That's the kind of anger that Jonah felt at the end of the book of Jonah when he's finding shade under that large plant and then it withers away, right? And he's angry. Jonah's more concerned with losing his shade than he is with the well-being of 120,000 Ninevites. That is foolish anger. Conversely, there's a kind of anger we feel when we're offended at the gross mistreatment of others. This is righteous anger. Righteous anger is what we see God feeling at times throughout the pages of Scripture. When His goodness in creation is perverted, it is evil. And He rightly is angry at that evil because true, healthy, righteous anger is always born out of a deep, deep love. And God loves his creation deeply. When he sees his creation hurting one another, fighting, taking advantage of the weak and defenseless, he is angered because his heart is for the weak and for the defenseless. He loves them too much to let their mistreatment go unnoticed. Justice must be had. A couple of smaller examples from my life. Hypothetical, of course. If my oldest little girl, Eva Jean, lies to me about whether or not she needs to go potty, because we're potty training, when I wake her up at midnight, and she says, no, Daddy, I don't need to go. And then she comes into our room an hour later and tells us that she went potty in her bed. This definitely did not happen two weeks ago. (laughs) It's important for me to ask myself, am I upset because I'm being inconvenienced right now? Right? I felt angry in that moment. Is that a reasonable reaction? Am I upset because my pride is hurt because I felt like she needs to honor her father? Is it about me or is it about an offense to God? The answer to those questions quickly reveal that any anger I felt in that situation was unreasonable. I'm just irritated that I'm being inconvenienced. On the other hand, here's another hypothetical scenario. If Julie or I were to witness Eva deliberately snatch something out of her sister's hand, and then when confronted, act like she was playing with it the entire time, I might feel anger towards the injustice done to her sister. There's a lot going on in a situation like this. I'm not being inconvenienced, or I'm at least far less inconvenienced by Eva Jean doing something to her sister, right, rather than the potty training scenario. And yet, she's done something to harm someone else that's hurt them, and she's, she's taken without their approval, and then she's lied about it. At that level, there is a certain amount of anger, albeit a small amount, that I feel towards her that I think is fair because of the injustice being done to another. Now, I know these personal examples are a little bit trivial in comparison to the real life-threatening mistreatment facing David 
and others in our psalm. But David's prayer, asking Yahweh to destroy the evildoers, is severe, but the gravity of the evildoers' wrongdoing, their deceit, their evil plans, is also severe. So with that, let's read again these first five verses in Psalm 140. Rescue me, Lord, from evildoers. Protect me from the violent, who devise evil plans in their hearts and stir up war every day. They make their tongues as sharp as a serpent's. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Keep me safe, Lord, from the hands of the wicked. Protect me from the violent, who devise ways to trip my feet. The arrogant have hidden a snare from me. They have spread out the cords of their net and have set traps for me along my path. David begins by asking for the Lord's protection and goes on to describe how wicked the plans of these men were. The first thing that caught my attention when reading this psalm is how evil these men opposing David were, just the, the level of brutality and violence and evil they seem to exude. It just seems so extreme. David describes them as devising evil plans in their hearts and stirring up wars daily and being violent. And the question in my mind quickly becomes, how did these men become so evil? Like, how does that happen? Does any rational person wake up one day and think, today's a good day to start some wars? Probably not. This kind of wicked existence comes about after years and years of small decisions. And every single one of us in this room is a culmination of thousands and thousands, if not millions of choices. Many of those choices were made for us, or they were things done to us that have shaped who we are, but the bulk of the decisions in our lives were made by ourselves. The difficult reality when looking at such pure evil like we see described in this passage is that these men became this way most likely gradually, not suddenly, gradually, over decades of foolish decisions. The truth is we are always becoming who we are. We are always becoming something. The men in this psalm have decided after many years that the pursuit of self, of personal gain, getting power at all costs, is the greater good over and above considering their neighbor. Now, evil like this doesn't simply come about independent of thinking, of, of thoughts, of ideas. It's not robotic and void of thought. What I mean is that these oppressors didn't simply just toss a coin every time they had to make a decision and they just got the bad, you know, the not, make a naughty decision again. Make a, they had to think through what they were going to do. They wrestled with ideas. They weren't choosing blindly. They interacted with truth and lie, with ideas, and it was their determination of what is good and true that has led them to become who they were. This is why the power of ideas is so unbelievably important. An idea that sounds right, like choosing to protect your own, can slowly become the idea that 
I should protect my own at all costs, even at the sake of another's life. So it is not only what they do, their actions, but it is what they're believing and saying that matters. That's why David points out the sinister nature of their words when he says, they make their tongues sharp as a serpent's. The poison of vipers is on their lips. So given the courtroom language in this passage, it's clear that David is most concerned about how these lies that these men are spewing will affect himself and others because the violence the evildoers perpetrated is most frighteningly done by their speech. It is their words that can kill like the poison of a snake's bite. On the nature of truth and decision-making, psychologist and philosopher Dr. Jordan Peterson says this, That's why we can speak things into being, and we do. And when you speak the truth, then you speak paradise into being. And when you speak falsely, you speak hell into being. And that's the truth. And what that means is that with every decision that you make, you decide for yourself and for everyone else whether you're going to tilt the world a little bit more towards hell or a little bit more towards heaven. And that's the burden you bear for your existence and the choices that you make as you pass through life. And it's the fleeing from that burden that's at the bottom of the nihilism of postmodernism and the escape into totalitarian certainties of idol worship. And none of this is fictional because we've seen the consequences. What's the consequence of a group who won't face the burden of existence, who thinks that mostly life is meaningless? Peterson goes on to say that one of those consequences is Auschwitz. Among many other evils in the 21st century, decisions matter. Making truth claims that are honest and actually true, not half-truths, matters. You and I make decisions and choices every day. Some big, most pretty small, seemingly insignificant. And these choices lead us towards creating heaven and order for the world or creating hell and disorder and chaos. Jesus describes this idea of becoming who you are in John 8, when he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of, Ad of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. These men seeking to do evil in Psalm 140 are just like their father, the devil. They have chosen the alternative way to God's way, and it is that of a murderer from the beginning, the father of lies. They love violence, cruelty, and intrigue for their own sake. So here's the takeaway for us. Let's bring it back down a little bit. Who are you becoming? Better yet, what are you believing? 
What wrong patterns or thoughtful or thoughts or sinful actions are you justifying right now? I wonder what would happen if each one of us put ourselves aside, our own approval aside, our own success and progress aside. And what if Central Bible was a church filled with followers of Jesus who regularly made decisions to serve others before themselves in our homes, in our workplaces, in the areas of influence that we have? What would that do for the kingdom of God? I think we underestimate, we grossly underestimate the impact of daily, regular decisions. We so often want the Holy Spirit to do something miraculous. But I think the Holy Spirit most consistently moves in the ordinary, day-to-day decisions that each of us have control over. Which way will we tilt the balance? If you're not sure how to answer this question, what am I believing? Or if it feels too vague, Dr. Peterson offers this. You can only find out what you actually believe rather than what you think you believe by watching how you act. You simply do not know what you believe before that. You're too complex to understand yourself. I believe it's wrong to be quick-tempered. I think it's wrong to get self-righteously angry. I believe that. To be angry over some minor inconvenience. And yet, I can look back at the last month and I can see myself raising my voice at my daughter. Suddenly. And it reveals the contrary to what I really believe. The best thing that I can do is acknowledge that contradiction. To own it. To admit that it's real. If I struggle with anger at 31, what's that going to look like unchecked in 31 more years? If I seek to justify it, explain it away, or just ignore it altogether, what will happen? What will I become? You and I have the freedom to look at those parts of our lives that we're not proud of. The parts of our lives that we don't want to share about at community group. And we can face them free of shame because of the grace that we have in Jesus Christ as we walk with him and apprentice him one day at a time. So let's do that together this season as we wait on God and we listen to one another. Let's be willing to face those areas of contradiction. Amen? Verses 6 through 8. I say to the Lord, you are my God. Hear, Lord, my cry for mercy. Sovereign Lord, my strong deliverer, you shield my head in the battle, in the day of battle. Do not grant the wicked their desires. Lord, do not let their plans succeed. So here we see David recognizing that only God can thwart the evil plans of his accusers. David hopes in the reality that God hears the cries of the, of the defenseless. He hopes in the reality that despite how strong and clever these men's plans are, Yahweh is stronger. David then asks the Lord not to give the enemy the desires of their heart because he knows that they're just going to continue to create more 
chaos and spew more lies. Commentators think that David is recalling past experiences of God's protection in these verses. When he says, you shield my head in the day of battle, David knows that in order to face grave danger and challenge before him, and in order to do that with confidence and hope, he needs to remember what God has already done. He needs to look back. He has to pause, look back at God's mercy in his life, and that will calm his restless soul. He meditates on the protection of Yahweh in the past, and that brings him real hope for the future. Reminds me of that maybe 90s song. Everything is gonna be alright. Two weeks in a row of people singing in the pulpit. Rockabye. Anyway, so the, the theme of looking back, I think, is a helpful reminder for us of remembering. Most of us won't face some kind of real danger or threat of death like David did on a regular basis, but we do face, I think, the threat of overwhelming fear in our culture and anxiety. And that's because of the endless, depressing news cycle and the political chaos of our day. In the midst of a world where there's too many daily tragedies to keep track of them all, and there's so much political outrage from every side, it's helpful for us to pause regularly to remind ourselves that God is sovereign, that he's aware of what's going on. He's not blind to it. He understands the world that we live in. More personally, Yahweh knows the specific struggles that I have, that you have. He expects us to pause to remember what he's done in our lives, to remember who we are in his sight, and to continue pressing on. This is why the theme of looking back is all throughout the Old Testament. The day of Sabbath rest being the prime example, right? God gets done creating the universe in Genesis and then decides that he needs to rest on the seventh day. He looks back at all he did the previous six days and he remembers his own good works in creating everything. He looks back and God remembers what he accomplished. Later in Exodus, the Lord commands his people to take one day each week To what? Sabbath. To rest. To step back from the work that they've been doing. To step away from the strong demands of life, the pulls of life. But we're not supposed to see the Sabbath as a day that's just free of any responsibility. Rather, we're supposed to do what God did on the seventh day when he rested. We step back and we remember all that God has done for us in those last six days. We look back at the week and we look to see what God has done in our lives, just as he did when he created the world. We need to recall God's kindness to us each week by meditating on his grace in those last seven days. And if we Sabbath well, we will find true rest from the chaos of our lives. We will find hope the hope to face the coming days with confidence, an expectation that God will continue to work. 
Let's look at verses 9 through 11. Those who surround me proudly rear their heads. May the mischief of their lips engulf them. May burning coals fall on them. May they be thrown into the fire, into miry pits, never to rise. May slanderers be established in the land, not be established in the land. May disaster hunt down the violent. Here we read David pleading with the Lord to give these men over to the very evil they say and do to others. When David says, may the mischief of their own lips engulf them. Give them over to the very things they want to do to others. May it happen to them, Lord. It's curious that it is their words and what those words turn into, evil actions, that David focuses on. He hones in on that. Here again, we're reminded of the power of sinful ideas, that they matter. A quick side note. The fundamental nature of sin is deception. It's, sin is in itself de- deceptive twisting of what is good and right. All sin is a distortion of truth and a twisting of God's creation. That is why Satan didn't come into the garden and kill Adam and Eve with some sort of physical violence. He didn't commit a physical act against them. What did he do? It was an idea, wasn't it? He caused them to question. He kills them with deception. He perverted the truth they understood and got them to question whether God had their best interest in mind when God said to Adam and Eve, you can eat of any tree in this garden except one. A thousand yeses. Freedom. There's just one that I want you to abstain from. The devil comes to them. God just knows you'll become like him if you eat from that tree. He doesn't want you to partake because he wants to keep it all for himself. Satan caused Adam and Eve to question what was good and right. It is an idea. Did God really say that fractures the cosmos and disrupts the harmony between Yahweh and his creation, his people? So notice that David believes that God's judgment Rather, that the judgment here is God's. It belongs to God and no one else. David's request is that the Lord would give them over to what they desperately seek for others, destruction. And it is the words that they use to plot and hurt others that will now become their own reality. Verse 11, may disaster hunt down the violent. This is the boomerang quality of sin. All sin returns to hurt and haunt the sinner. This idea of mischief and sin coming back to bite evildoers is found in a number of places throughout the Old Testament. Psalm 7, whoever is pregnant with evil conceives trouble and gives birth to disillusionment. Whoever digs a hole and scoops it out falls into the pit they have made. The trouble they cause recoils on them. Their violence comes down on their own heads. Proverbs 1. These men lie in wait for their own blood. 
they ambush only themselves. Such are the paths of all who go after ill-gotten gain. It takes away the life of those who get it. Deuteronomy 19, if the witness proves to be a liar, giving false testimony against a fellow Israelite, then do to the false witness as that witness intended to do to the other party. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. David's request to give these men over to the hellish desires they so desperately seek for others reminds me of C.S. Lewis's fantastic book, The Great Divorce. In it, Lewis describes the lives of several ghosts who fight to get on this bus headed to heaven. But once there, and once seeing the bliss that they could have, reject it and willingly choose to go back to hell. Lewis says, There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, Thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, Thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. Those who knock, it is opened. In another book, The Problem of Pain, Lewis says it a different way. The gates of hell are locked from the inside. The idea of God banishing anyone to hell is frankly abrasive in some ways, difficult to grasp. But I think hell is a lot more of a choice than someone being forced against their will. What we become now by our daily decisions is who we will become in the afterlife, in the life to come. Lastly on this, notice that David's request to Yahweh It's not vindictive. He's not asking God to give him some personal, murderous victory over these slanderers. He trusts that it is God's judgment that will take care of them. He knows that judgment is Yahweh's alone. He asks that God only intervene to rescue the innocent while allowing the evil desires of the wicked to fall upon their own heads. Okay. Final two verses. I know that the Lord secures justice for the poor and upholds the cause of the needy. Surely the righteous will praise your name and the upright will live in your presence. Finally, we read of David's release from obsessing over his enemies. Right, Everything up to this point has been talking about them mostly. And here we get some sort of reprieve from that. Now he recalls the deep, deep love that we talked about earlier that Yahweh has for the poor, for the defenseless, for the innocent. Psalm 140 then climaxes with a genuine hope in what is good and true, that the upright will live in the presence of Yahweh. So David's confidence and hope lies in the character of God. David knows that whatever amount of mercy and love that he feels about being mistreated, God feels far more and to a far greater degree. So to sum up, David petitions God to help him when he's faced with false accusations that have dangerous consequences for him. 
and others. Evildoers are trying to trap him, right? In spite of this, David has confidence that God will rescue him because God sides with the vulnerable righteous over against arrogant, wicked people. Jesus himself was the subject of false accusations, of lies and deceit that led to his crucifixion. It was ideas that killed Jesus. It was the lies and deceit, the ideas of evil men that led to his torture, his death on a Roman cross. One can imagine Jesus wanting to pray a prayer like Psalm 140 for his enemies, for what they were doing to him. However, rather than uttering destruction against his enemies, Jesus prays, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Like David, Jesus expresses his confidence in Yahweh, in God, even in the face of death. See, Jesus comes on the scene and he radically changes how we pray for those who threaten us, for those who seek to harm us. Rather than asking God to allow the very evil his enemies seek for others to fall on them, Jesus takes their evil, he takes it on, and he forgives them. There's a new paradigm for how we face pain and hurt caused by others, and it is this, forgiveness. But they're spreading awful lies about me. Forgive them. They're saying bad things about my family. Forgive them. They're threatening my position at work. Forgive them. They're talking bad about my reputation. Forgive them. There are no prayers in this psalm asking God to change the hearts of these evildoers or to see them reconciled to God. And this is what makes the life of Christ so offensive to us. Jesus introduces us to a new ethic. The sins of the sinner will be stopped, but not in the way we think. Not because God's going to snuff out that evil or that person. Not because their own sin turns on them, but because forgiveness changes them. Prayers of retribution are now turned into prayers of forgiveness, of grace in the kingdom of King Jesus. No longer do we seek God's righteous retribution on our foes, but instead we seek the scandalous forgiveness of Christ on the cross. Jesus takes this retribution on himself. He takes on that evil and he bears it. He becomes that wretched liar, that murderer, and he defeats that evil. It's no wonder that if Satan came to deceive as the father of lies and twist the truth so that sin would abound, Jesus comes to be the way, the truth, and the life. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word is truth. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus came to reveal the true nature of bliss. True bliss is when you lay down your life for another. 
when you take on the burden of suffering with a friend, when you grant forgiveness to someone who has hurt you. And so we have Jesus on the cross. He's weak, he's bloodied, badly, badly beaten, near death. And he looks over at an enemy hanging next to him on a cross. Jesus sees this criminal who's justly experiencing the very pain that he's probably caused so many, the life of thieving, taking from others. The criminal says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus looks at this man, this criminal, who's experiencing the weight of all of those small decisions of his life. And rather than say, you're getting what you deserve, he says, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. That's good news. Let's pray. Pray this Matthew 5 for us as we bow our heads. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you. And do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the, this new ethic that we, that we get to now experience and give to others, offer others the kingdom ethic of grace and forgiveness. It is powerful. It changes the world. While we are the culmination of years and years of decisions, Lord, we have the opportunity to choose to do what's right, choose to be truth-tellers, choose to be honest with ourselves, to sit in your grace, not in shame, when we find contradictions between what we believe or what we think we believe and what we do, we find grace in that moment. And you say, come on, walk with me. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would help us a little bit more these next seven days. That when we feel overwhelmed, we would look back and remember what you've done. And that we would look to you as we go about our areas of influence our homes, our families, our work. We pray that you would make us a people that forgive quickly, fully, and with 
truth, and grace. We love you. Amen. We desire to be formed by the Word of God in community. If you have questions about this week's sermon, we would love to hear from you. For more information about our church, please visit centralbible.church.